All right, cool. So back again to continue. Gildelus's, Gildelus, is cinema to the time image. So now we're gonna start from chapter four, titled "The Crystals of Time." Uh, so obviously, go check out episode one on this book, and especially not especially, but if you want a little bit more background context, go check out uh, the Cinema 1, the movement image, uh, which we've done on here in pretty great detail. But for now, uh, the crystals of time. Yeah. So, I don't know. Do you want to introduce yourself again? Should you? Yeah. Probably. Yeah, probably so, for so, professional so, reasons. What if someone only wants to talk about crystals? I, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Okay. Um, I'm Christina L. Burke, PhD candidate at the Center for Study of Theory and Criticism. Uh, okay. Aspiring screenwriter. Um, uh, I do creative work. I do a lot of research. Um, oh, the cat's going to make noises. Um, yeah, I do all sorts of things um i'm in film studies association of canada award winner for an essay That's right, i wrote you didn't mention that yeah i didn't mention one. that last time uh it should have come up anyway yeah and uh i also love this book if you listen to the last episode you know that um what was that uh the award what was the essay you wrote for it ah uh, yes so um I don't remember the exact title. It has the word syneroticism in it, um, which is a sort of concept I was playing with uh, as something that goes beyond cinephilia, but it's not nearly as uh, hot and sweaty as Patricia McCormick's cinesexuality. It's um, it's more of a theoretical construct. Uh, and it just, it's it was an essay about what what we want from cinema now that our relationship to it has changed so much from what it used to be. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, that sounds pretty great. And I'm, like, super critical of film studies in it, so it's weird that a film studies association gave me an award for it. <laughs> it, it sounds good. <laughs> sounds like it deserved it. Uh, <sighs> but yeah, all right, so that... We're starting here from Chapter 4, The Crystals of Time. Uh, and this is where I had no idea what the hell was going on. Really, like, no idea. Uh, because crystals, to me, at this point, made no, I didn't understand. Okay. I didn't, I didn't get So, it. let's talk about crystals. Crystals! Exclamation point. I love crystals. I love this chapter. I love this book, but I love this chapter in, specific, in particular. So, when we think of a crystal, we probably think of some kind of jewel. Or we think of a sort of clear stone or a glass That's what crystal. I thought. Yeah. And that's that's really not wrong, <laughs> but what we need to be thinking about is the reflections in a crystal and right. how a crystal sort of images enter into it when we look through it and then they become different things. They take on different shapes. And so in the crystal, there's an indiscernibility between something that is and all the things it can become. Right. Uh, and so you have crystals that you can both see through clearly, crystals that are limpid, and then you have more opaque crystals where what you see is maybe um, there's some kind of uh, gunk, to use a very academic word, on it, or it's not as, it doesn't, the light doesn't travel through it in the same way. It's stopped. Um, 
And so the real thing to hit on here, though, is this idea of indiscernibility, particularly between the virtual and the actual, or as he puts it, between the real and the imaginary, or I guess what we can call in some level between the sort of sensory motor way of looking at things and then the possibilities of things. And that these two things, our, our ability to be able to distinguish between them falls away. And this is what happens in the crystal. We look into the crystal and all these things become possible. And then he goes on a bit of a diversion <laughs> where he starts talking about the conspiracy of money. Yeah, I, I, I made a note of that. <laughs> for yeah yeah reason. and this idea that time is money and he yeah. uses the example of Fellini's eight and a half where when which i've seen of, of <laughs> any of the movies in here i think that's the only one i've seen it's I a think. good one and the cabinet of dr caligari which i yeah. think he mentions but yeah yeah um yeah. but yeah so the movie ends both the movie as we're watching it ends when the filmmaker's money runs out but also his ability to work ends when the money runs out and what Deleuze is getting at here builds on when he talks about the conspiracy of cliches too is that cliched cinema it's always being put to use so the money knows where it's going we see the money and people consume it they get what they want and more money goes into it and it lets itself be reproduced indefinitely and I think what Deleuze is drawing on is that in art cinema and in oppositional kinds of cinemas, money is much more precarious. And so you have to imagine more with less. You have to get at things that wouldn't be possible otherwise. If you had the money to just make a sensory motor recreation of what you were trying to express, like you could do that but you don't so you run out of money trying to make these movies and i think there's a kind of quasi marxist sort of message going on here in deleuze where if we begin to think of images in terms of how they are exchanged then images that don't neatly make an exchange that don't fit into that hierarchy of exchange have a sort of resistant quality or kernel to them mm-hmm and crystals are sort of, I guess, the image that you take on to create different possibilities and where you can sort of siphon and escape this conspiracy of money that demands things meet the sort of symbolic or sensory motor demand. Right. So I think that's why he brings that up here. I think it'll become more clear later on what what he's getting at with the money conspiracy thing and what he's getting at with the cliche and how these things relate together. So moving on to the second part, he starts talking, we get, we're getting more into our description of time, what time does. And so we encounter time here as subjectivity, virtuality, thought, affect, any space, whatever. And so we lose our our sort of mooring in time. Um, I really think of Kurt Vonnegut's novel Slaughterhouse-Five here. I don't know if you've read it. I, yeah, I have, yeah. Yeah, that was a really big novel for me in high school where 
the character becomes unstuck in time. That's the words Vonnegut uses to describe it. And so in a crystal, or in the crystals of time, what we see is time's movement in both directions. We see events from the present and events from the past going simultaneously in two directions through different lenses of the crystal. Things happen and they go multiple ways. Um, and the key idea here is the shift to the notion that time isn't being produced by the things that we're doing. Time is something that exists outside of us that we partake in. And I kind of wish Ben was here because this is the moment where he'd say, like, Deleuze is a real Kantian. Because Kant has this idea in the Critique of Pure Reason, he, in the Transcendental Aesthetic, you can't think something if it's not in time. Yeah, now I would, <laughs> I would add to that, um, when he's describing the shift from the movement image to the time image, he's describing a moment, and this is a moment he, tr he, he really as uh, ascribes to Kant, in which time is no longer subordinated to movement, mm -hmm. when in fact, suddenly we find movement can be subordinated to time. Yeah. And Kant certainly participates in that with the transcendental aesthetic when he's like, essentially there are two media through which we anyone can understand the world, and they are held pretty equally. In fact, uh, space is only possible. The two media are space and time. Space is only possible because we have a sense of time. Uh, and it's in that way that we get this, you know, subordination of movement through space uh, by time or, or to time in relation to time mm -hmm. in my shitty reading of Kant. Well, no, it's actually a good reading because let's look, let's, let's step back and look at this project of a whole. As a whole, you have cinema one and two, you have movement and time, you have the antinomies between the movement image and the time image. I think there's definitely a kind of, Kantian ghost at work here though he's going to he's going to take Bergson as sort of his model and at one point he says well Bergson is very Kantian here but he would never admit it um and he says it's it's slightly different but it's very similar uh in Bergson and I think the difference in Bergson comes when it is when it comes to the subject who perceives time and space so for Kant, there's this the sort of function of like the subject, whereas for Bergson, there's just images, and there's the movement image and the time image, and then the brain image that is going to work between them and towards them. Um, and so again, because we can move in all directions, because we can occupy an image of time, because we can experience an image of time, Again, there's this indiscernibility between what is real, what isn't, what is just a thought of something's possibility, what is actually being experienced. And he hits this again and again, indiscernibility is the word. And in what is philosophy, he'll use the term zones of indis indiscernibility to describe what artworks do with their various becomings and things like that. So, yeah, this is the the kind of shape he's taking up and now we're moving into time images and so the third chapter or third section sorry third section of the fourth chapter gives us different kinds of crystals <laughs> and uh it's very new agey now um so we have perfect crystals where he talks about uh max ophel's films 
And so these are essentially like circuits. Um, they don't, they don't point towards the future. They don't decay into a past. They are just perfectly shiny. We see into them and the light goes through them and goes around them and is reflected on all sides. And as a description of Ophil's films, it kind of suits them. I think Ophil's is more complicated than that. He's not as immaculate as Deleuze makes him sound, but that's a personal taste i have no dog <laughs> uh, in that race with uh jean renoir we have cracked crystals which is a crystal that opens out onto a future or a possibility so that we go through these virtual actual indistinctions to then be able to make something of ourselves or to deal with being in the world um I actually found a really good understanding of Renoir the other day, accidentally, because it wasn't about Renoir, it was about George Eliot. Okay. Um, And it was just this idea that realism isn't just this objective sort of point of view. Realism also has a sort of self-care element. So what Eliot is trying to do isn't just to describe this hideous world of, like, low people, it's to, like allow us to recognize these certain qualities of ourselves that we're not proud of and like be able to live in them. Mm-hmm. And I think with Renoir, it's very similar that you see these sometimes miserable, sometimes struggling people, characters who um, you recognize an almost pure humanity in, not a, not a ideal and then they learn to exist in the world as it is and as a part of it. And so, like, I think Deleuze's description of a crystal which occupies these two places but then opens out onto a greater possibility is really, really on point with Renoir. Right. Um, and so then he talks about seeded crystals, which scientifically I can't explain to you. I don't know how crystals work with seeds or anything <laughs> like that. Maybe someone does. Talk to me about crystals. I'd love to learn about crystals. Leave a comment. Uh, but yeah, and he talks about Fellini with this. And what he's getting across is that Fellini creates these worlds where there isn't this distinction between virtual and actual, but also it's not as situational as it is in Renoir or Ophils, that the world is constantly building itself out of memories and things becoming indistinguishable from one another. And this is like eight and a half, like those tracking shots where you see all these strange people. It's like, are these people real? Are they this character's imagination? What are we seeing? We just saw this character's imagination. Now are we still in it? Are we out of it? Right. Where are we? And it's just this world building up and building up and all these reflections. And then the last kind of crystal he talks about are these decomposing crystals right. in Lucchino Visconti's films, which The Leopard, if you haven't seen it, no. uh, if you like The Godfather but wish it was more Italian and had nothing to do with crime... <laughs> uh, <laughs> What's left in The Godfather, if you if you subtract those things, or if you subtract the crime? Um, a, like... Family drama? Family drama uh, about these aristocrats in, I think it's in Sicily, correct me if I'm wrong, um, 
and how they deal with sort of the unification of Italy. And it's this real historical sort of film, but it's about someone who doesn't belong in this new present anymore, who's outside of it. And so they see that old world falling away. And so what comes to be indistinguishable is these values of the present, what they will become, and then also the world as they knew it and how it's going away. And so he travels into the crystal, but then the crystal ends up collapsing and the movie sort of ends with the character taking his bow. So yeah, those are the kinds of crystals. (laughs) I believe you. I'm... Um, I really cannot emphasize how dense I am with this. Like, (laughs) if you will look right here, my note was... WTF is the crystal uh, because I didn't, I couldn't like grasp it. Yeah. Uh, but you made it a lot clearer. Yeah. I, I think when I think about it, I think of like a glass crystal or I think of yeah. a rock crystal or like a prism. Um, yeah. And I just try to imagine something being reflected in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is uh also a reference to like biomolecular crystals and crystallization going on here sure with especially with the talk of like seeds in the environment so it's like not just crystals in a um sort of jewel sense or um geological sense but also an organic sense and uh yeah i don't know how else to put that i don't have the science words (laughs) but i remember my old supervisor trying to get me to do some stuff about um biochemical crystals and me going where do i even start with this what is this research i'm i'm a film girl why are you doing this to me (laughs) why are you making me read about science yeah 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 uh no thank you yeah, so that's chapter four. Um, I really love the stuff about crystals because it's so strange. And this book's just going to get stranger. Um, but just this this way of seeing time in these kind of endless reflections and finding it in directors so varied from each other. Like, I don't think Renoir, watching a Renoir film, watching a Fellini film or anything alike, I don't think you can compare them. Yeah. But the way he draws a sort of similar taxonomy out of them, and I think that's one of the parts of these books I've really come to appreciate this time around, is just like, it's about finding these images and what they attempt to relate and contain. It's just, it's it's so mind-blowing to me. And yeah. like, I find something exhilarating about it too. Like, it's it's almost its own science fiction in a way, the stuff about the crystals. Uh, anyway, we can move on to chapter five. That sounds good to me. Back to our boy Bergsong. Fourth commentary on Bergsong. We should save this drink to pour one out for Bergsong when uh, we're done with this chapter, because that'll be that'll be our last dance with Henri. Yeah, that's right. Huh? Yeah. So. Now we get into direct time in, time images, um, which the in his words, the crystal reveals a direct time image. Yes, and so he starts talking about sheets of the past. Right, 
Uh, and he describes them as being like waves and overlapping. And we get this idea of the pure past, which is maybe one of the craziest ideas Bergson has. Where we all have memories and we all have the past we know about and talk about for ourselves. But those things we talk about are what Deleuze and Bergson would call recollection images. They're parts of ourselves that we use. For Bergson, there exists this pure past that we've experienced that those things are made out of, that Mm -hmm. we carry with us all the time. It's like an unconscious, but it's just this reservoir of possibilities of things we've experienced that we dive into to pull out recollection images but exists as kind of this infinite sort of sea of history that's a part of us that we most of the time don't even know about or acknowledge and we all have these pure pasts as individuals but there also exists a general pure past of the world and in which we all take part yeah And so there are all these sheets, both the memories we form in our conscious of and the pure past that we don't recall, and they all overlap with each other and with the world's past, too. And so all these pasts are there with us all the time. All these pasts are happening now as a part of us, but we're not thinking about them. Yeah. And so what the time image is going to do is going to get us to dive in to these pure pasts and change from being a question of movement and surface to being a question of depth, to literally begin diving through all these layers of ourselves and the world and the characters in the films. When I say ourselves, that's what I mean 90% of the time is the characters in the films. Yeah. Um, so, like, the way I understood this <laughs> was that when we were watching, like, really old films, pre-World uh, War II films, what we saw were characters that we didn't, maybe we didn't really care about. We cared about what they were doing at the mm-hmm. moment. Uh, whereas there was a point in which, post-World War II, where we suddenly became concerned not only with the histories of the characters themselves, but with the, you know, histories of the um, spaces in which they were inhabiting and mm-hmm. stuff. And that, to me, was the, how I very simplistically understood this this association of the past with these immediate, quote-unquote, present moments. I don't know if you can, if you can make me feel better about <laughs> it and confirm what are my suspicions. Yeah, that's... I think what we become interested in is all of it. We become interested in the character's history and the history of the place and how they sort of collide with one another and how this doesn't produce a reaction or an action, but it produces a pause or a moment to think, to describe. And we have to think of what is this relationship that's being presented to us between these two things? What is the character seeing, but what am I seeing them see? If that makes sense. Yeah. And so this is where time 
becomes thought because it's in this pure past in this virtuality that new ideas come from through description yeah so time and thought sort of take on an identity they're not completely equal but the experience of diving into time becomes thinking yeah and so he uses last year at Marienbad as an example of this and it's I wrote my undergraduate thesis on last year at Marion Bad, and I used this book, and I didn't understand a word of it. I just picked out sentences that sounded good. Um, I'm, I'm in the second year of my PhD, and I have no idea what the, yeah. what the hell this book was about. I wouldn't imagine in my undergrad trying to... But seeing it now where, when you watch Marion Bad, there's the location, which... Maybe Marienbad, maybe somewhere else. It's a fancy European resort. The decor is constantly changing. The architecture is changing. The garden's changing. You have a character approaching one another and saying, We met last year. It was here. You said this. And she's like, I don't remember. I don't remember. I refuse. And there's their memories are competing. The space becomes a giant memory in itself. And these all overlap with one another, and you don't know what is past, what is present, what is actual, what is possible. Right. Is it all a ghost story? Like, that's, like, the easy way out of it, right? Is to just be like, they're all dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, yeah, the he makes this comparison to the Franz Kafka short story, Josephine the Singer, which I, I don't know. It, no. Okay, so it's about a singing mouse. <laughs> okay. And there is these people, the the mice gather around to hear Josephine sing. Right. But eventually she 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 kind of disappears and she stops singing another and none of the mice know how to sing. And there's this constant question of did this mouse ever sing? <laughs> who's heard of a singing mouse? Yeah. Like even among us mice, who's yeah. heard of a singing mouse? Like with art, like I read Josephine the singer as being about art fundamentally. It's about aesthetics, like what what is art when it exists for us? Like, does it last? Is it permanent? Or is it something that just comes out before us and we experience it and then it goes away? Mm-hmm. And so it has this very transient quality. And it's something that, like, when we remember it, we can't just pull up. We can't just make a recollection image out of our aesthetic experiences. Right. They're just a part of us and we feel them and we try and describe them, but yeah. we never, yeah. we're never just going to be able to be like, well, I read this and I'm going to use it for this. Yeah. Like we do that because we're academics, uh-huh. but that's not the real point. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, after he brought up Josephine the Singer, which is one of my favorite short stories, I just wrote in brackets, I love this book. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I want to read it. Uh, cause I love, I, and I'm talking about cinema too. Like this is like, it, he gets me. What he's saying is like, right. okay, when I get through the more difficult, like, okay, so how does like crystals work when they like form on mushrooms? Cause is that the kind of crystal he means as opposed to like, what is it? When I get past that yeah, and when I get like, so like a sheet of the past, is that like a glacier? Is it like a wave or like, is it like ice colliding with each other? Or like, is it like just bed sheets rolling around? Could I like make <laughs> a like art installation and call it sheets of the past? Yeah. Um, and like when I get past that and I get to what he's saying about 
the transience of art about this pure past about time as thinking and describing and trying to be in time that's when i'm really responding to what's going on here and i'm like okay yes this this absolutely makes sense and the films you're drawing on fit really well yeah um and so in the second part he talks about uh wells as sort of the person who defines the direct time image so citizen kane is the first direct time image it's not like a proto time image like an ozu it's not like neorealism which will develop its wandering and the character of the seer it's something that just comes out and it's this is what the time image is going to be and it's tied to sort of depth of field or sequence shots so um the famous scene Deleuze relies upon is um, when Susan Alexander, Kane's mistress, tries to commit suicide. Our shot is through like her glass of pills, and she's lying in the bed, and then we see Kane himself in the background at the door, and he looks very small and helpless while she lies there, big and suffering. And he comes in to see her, and it, there's no cut, there's no like reaction shot. It's all this long sort of take, and so Deleuze is going to argue this sort of movement, this diagonal movement through the scene, the characters moving across the screen rather than horizontally is the start of like a pressure of time taking place in the image. And so this is sort of Wells's first major discovery. And then the other thing is that on the one hand, we say that Citizen Kane is famously a movie made up of flashbacks um, it's about a reporter trying to figure out what Rosebud was. Yeah. But the innovation Wells makes is that Rosebud doesn't actually mean anything. We can say it stands for this, this, and this, but the film never says it. No one ever confirms it. And the reporter never finds out what Rosebud is. Only we know that. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the sled, <laughs> yeah. in case anyone yes. was curious. <laughs> yeah, what's the awful this family is... guy bit? It's his sled! It's his sled! <laughs> Don't bother! <laughs> um... Spoiler alert. Yeah. But, so, the fact that they're, these are these recollections, the character's trying to use these flashbacks, trying to make sense of them, and just can't, is sort of, again, time asserting itself, that you can dive in and create all these descriptions out of the past, but you're never going to pull the thing. Yeah. You're never going to be able to make absolute use of it. Yeah. And then... So in part three, uh, just to go back to Rene, um, we get these sort of memory worlds or sort of films built out of competing memories. And I talked about Hiroshima Mon Amour earlier, where you have this woman who's remembering her trauma in Nazi-occupied France, and she's in 1960s Hiroshima with someone who lived through the bombings. Mm -hmm. And you have... Uh, just these images that are summoned up out of nowhere where the woman is walking on the streets of Hiroshima and all of a sudden she sees her old French village just come out of them. There is no there is no moment where she reminisces. It's just there all of a sudden. Like, the flashback is completely gone here. What mm -hmm. remains is just, like, thinking. Like, 
places become other places in time. The, the world itself can call upon this pure past and present it to you in what it is. And to go back to the sort of famous Europa 51 example, the Rossellini film, where the woman looks at the factory and she sees prisoners. Right. Like it's this same principle that the films themselves are taking on a quality of thinking. They're making connections. It's not even metaphorical. Like your brain doesn't work in metaphor. Like metaphor is a product of speech and of writing your brain just associates images and summons them into each other. And so that's what he talks about with Rene, and he talks about with these memory worlds, and how Wells sort of started this off with like, oh, we pull up memories and they don't do anything, but now memories just spring up. They're part of the space. And the space has a memory. We're almost in like Mallarmé territory of nothing will have taken place but the place. Um... Yeah, so that's that's chapter five. That's Bergsong. And that's the pour a drink out to Bergsong. Yeah, pour one out for Bergsong. I really need some water after that. <laughs> yeah, that was a good... Uh, you did a good presentation on that one for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. It made sense to me, if that's, that's any if that's any consolation. That's um, good. I mean, I will say, uh, this is all still very confusing to me. And part of the reason is that I just don't understand. It, it doesn't help that I haven't seen most of these movies, films. Yeah, movies <laughs> are films. They're I look. I like the so, colloquial and the element to uh, movies. Slight digression. I had a professor once who was like, "You shouldn't write movie. You should write film." And I thought that was some bullshit. Uh, just write movie. That's what they are. Yeah, it's, these it's, days they're more movies than they are films anyway. Yeah, they're not on a fucking uh, whatever the what would you the, the projector? The, the, yeah, yeah, they're distributed. They're they're not on projector. celluloid. Yeah, exactly. They're not. They're on hard film. drives. They're on like, big fancy hard drives. Anyways, um, it doesn't help that I haven't seen a lot of these movies, so it made it difficult. Certainly at times, mm-hmm. the Citizen Kane I was there with because I I'd seen that, um, but the rest of them, you know. Aside from Bicycle Thieves, Eight and a Half, yeah. you know, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Like, I hadn't seen... The hits. The hits. <laughs> the big ones. Yeah. I've seen nothing else. So it's like, I don't know what you're saying, Deleuze. But anyways, yeah. So, Chapter 6. The Powers of the False. Okay. Um, as Bergsong goes, in comes Nietzsche. <laughs> and so... Um, yeah, we're going to be talking about the powers of the false, the character of the forger, and falsifying narration, or characters deliberately lying to us, mm-hmm. manipulating us. Um, and he's going to talk, he talks about the failure of semiology again, this time much more generally about semiology as a practice. He's like, look, this can't account for this because it insists on there being a certain order and the characters utterances act against these orders. So there are competing levels and it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Like you need, you need a pure semiotics, not a semiology to understand cinema. Um, and again, he, you know, we get the, these are seers, not actors. They're people who are looking, they are people who are looking out to something and expecting it to, uh, I don't know if they're expecting anything from it. That's the thing is they just see something and they don't know how to deal with what they're seeing. Um, 
And so, like, there's this idea of, like, a pure crystal that is... <sighs> this chapter makes me think of, like, falsified, um, like, like forged jewels. <laughs> okay. Like, if the, the crystals earlier were, like, natural crystals, sure. like, yeah. uncut, these are, like derived crystals or like what's the word of counterfeit crystals yeah. or something they're like uh cut gems i don't know um something like that so these characters are always characters who are in production of themselves and of the world and they're looking to produce out of this pure past so if the other crystals were crystals that were somewhat organic in their nature or they were formed as a result of um they were formed out of the past these are characters reaching in and blending of trying to take control of those pure pasts or of trying to control the virtual to use possibility and so that's why like I think Orson Welles is, again, really big here. But this is going to be sort of like later Welles films. We see it in Kane. We can view the reporter in Kane as sort of like a forger. He's trying to make a story mm -hmm. out of Rosebud, and he can't do it. He can only, like, find all these platitudes about, like, what is a life? You know, what is one experience? But then it's in films like Mr. Arcaden, which opens with the parable of the scorpion and the frog, where, you know, the, the scorpion wants to cross the river, so it asks the frog to take it across, and the frog's like, no, you're going to sting me, and it's like, no, I won't, I have to get across, if I sting you, we'll both die, and then, of course, the scorpion stings the frog, and they both die, and the frog's like, what the hell was that, and the scorpion goes, I'm a scorpion, it's in my nature. I just know that from <laughs> Nicholas Winding Ruffin's Drive, yes. like that movie. I yeah, think well. I think Refn is maybe a bit of a Wells fan. <laughs> yeah. Um and yeah, so in Arcaden you have someone who's hired an investigator to find all these people who know about his past and then he slowly eliminates them. He's trying to retell his own story. He's trying to take control of it and build his own narrative, but he's he fails to do so. There's always something that escapes him. And just the idea that his past exists outside of his control is enough to completely destroy him. Because mm -hmm. the film ends with this sort of plain chase sequence. And the main character threatens to tell Arkadin's daughter about his true history. And so the daughter ends up lying and says, he told me everything. Of course, he didn't tell her anything. Yeah. But that is enough for Arkadin to be like to to crash his plane and die because it's just like I couldn't control this thing. I tried to make this this history out of myself, but it was beyond me. It was too much for me. Um, and then uh, from there we get to sort of this is similar to Nietzsche and the will to power. Like there is no truth besides that which we basically make for ourselves um what's the quote he uses from nietzsche that uh people who insist they tell the truth long ago forgot they were lying or something like that or they started out lying and then stopped remembering i forget the exact sort of thing but if you've read 
like Nietzsche's on truth and lie in a non-moral sense or you've slogged your way through Zarathustra or <laughs> any variety of Nietzsche texts, you know this is a consistent theme. Uh -huh. that invention is what matters. There's good and bad, but there's not good and evil. These are things we invent. Mm -hmm. um, and Wells really goes for this with the movie F for Fake, which gets mistranslated in the book as It's All True. Right, and you mentioned that when we did our Once yes. on the Movement image, that translators really screw that up well okay so i got curious about this and i looked at a french copy of cinema 2 and deleuze uses the wrong title so they've translated deleuze's title for the movie why would he have used the wrong title i don't know i think he might have been writing from memory and just didn't check his source <laughs> screwed it up yeah just, uh, whatever the title doesn't he really a real prussian whatever yeah it's okay uh, but the movie he's talking about when he says it's all true is F for Fake, which is <laughs> Wells' documentary about art forgery um, that ends with this like fun story about Picasso that turns out not to be true. Sure. Um, and it's all about just playing with the idea that truth is constructed and things like that. Um, and, you know, if we think about Wells' film adaptation of The Trial, you know, what it shows us is that the law is arbitrary. It's pursued for its own sake. There's no... There's no passage which shows that Joseph K. is guilty. He is just guilty. Yeah. Arbitrarily. Um, so again, the law is made and enforced, but it doesn't... <laughs> there's nothing inherently true to it. So that's, that's why Wells is so important to this idea of forgery. And I guess the most positive forger is kind of Falstaff in Chimes at Midnight, based on um, Shakespeare's Falstaff plays Henry IV Part II and Henry V. Henry the Fourth, Part One and Part Two, and Henry the Fifth. No idea. I should know this. Anyway, <laughs> um, Chimes at Midnight. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, and Falstaff is constantly just a character who spins tall tales, and he isn't quite welcome in proper society, but he's still a knight, and he teaches Prince Hal about the other side, and so he sort of makes himself into this quasi-mythical figure, even though he's a bit of, like, a philanderer and a... Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure. Everything, so... Yeah, that's... But he's more of a comical character. But again, he kind of has to be left behind in the end once Prince Hal becomes King Henry V. I do know that. Um, <laughs> Falstaff is cast out because... He is, he is sort of, like, deceitful, and he taught him everything he needed to know to become king, but he has no place in the court. Um, so that's the Wells stuff with forgery, and Wells and Nietzsche are kind of aligned here, which is kind of interesting if you think about Deleuze's, like, chronologies. So Eisenstein is Hegel, uh, Wells is Nietzsche. Yeah. Who's going to be Deleuze? <laughs> I don't know. Who's going to be Deleuze? We'll, we'll get there. <laughs> um, so part three of this chapter on forgery and the powers of the false, um, he talks about documentaries and particularly two filmmakers. He talks about uh, Jean Rauch and uh, Pierre Perrault, who we should really know more about Pierre Perrault. He's a French-Canadian filmmaker. 
He no made idea. tons of documentaries about... Um, I'm from the La Belle Provence, but <laughs> yeah. I should know. Like, uh, his, his films are about... What would you call them? Quebecois communities, particularly very deeply entrenched ones. Like, not... They're like fishers and hunters and things like that. Very provincial sort of Quebecois heritage. Not not les, the pêcheurs, les, uh, les, uh, les chasseurs. Well, that's specifically uh, fishers and hunters, but I don't yeah. know if there's like a specific name for like country folk. Because I don't, I don't want to say indigenous it's, it's, it's Quebecois a, no, no, because no, no, no. that's not um, what I mean. I don't know les paysans, maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> les chants de pays de, de la nation de Québec. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it though. That's his thing. It's very much like the nation of Quebec within Canada as its own nation. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if his work is kind of controversial because it might have a like really big separatist undercurrent to it. Maybe because I think it like sees English Canada as like a colonial power. Over I said the la Québécois. nation. It might have been le nation. La nation de Québec. La, le, I don't know. I'm. I know, and it's usually feminine, right? <laughs> I don't. I, my French is garbage. Yeah, mine's mine's not much better. So, but he, what he gets at, what Deleuze is getting at in this section, um, after our brief digression on what bad Canadians we are, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, is that these documentary filmmakers really occupy and create a place for their subjects mm. to express themselves and create their nations. So for Rausch, these are ethnographic studies of um, French Africans or Africans of French descent and things like that. And the sort of dialectic that takes place between what it means to be an integrated member of French society, but also still belong to these other cultures. Right. Um, and for Perrault, it's what it means to be a uh, French-speaking subject as a minority in Canada it's, as part of Quebec. Um, so the forging that's taking place there is a forging of an identity between the filmmaker and these people and giving them a place to speak through them. Mm -hmm. And so here's the first time I think in this book that we see the return of the idea of free and direct discourse that we talked about with cinema one. Right. So that, yes, it is the subject, the documentary filmmaker who is speaking, but who he's filming also speaks through him. So that the voice is neither one nor the other. It moves through both of them. And this is also what Deleuze says is a kind of forgery. Um, because the subject and object disappear. And then I think it's the end of this chapter. Um, he, or it might have been at the end of the section on Wells. But he talks about the difference between the forger and the true creative artist. And so the forger only sort of creates an imitation but the artist like really invents something okay this is in the wells section because he's talking about uh fake and the art forgery the art forger can recreate a rembrandt but it's rembrandt who really made something who created a world sure yeah 
And so I think with the documentary stuff, you get closer to really creating a world. These characters aren't forgers in the manipulative sense, like Wells's characters. These are people forging a nation. Yeah through their stories and the ethnographies of the filmmakers and stuff like that. And so he talks about the meaning of cinema verite. Yeah. And how like what gives it its name is not any claim to realism, but in giving a space over to these, these real people and their experiences. Um, And like, that's what also makes it direct cinema is the free and direct sort of discourse of it and yeah so that's the the powers of the false the power to invent is really the um if we go back to the our conspiracy framing of it then something that gives us a way out of the world of cliche and of like money yeah time equals money. yeah and out of money money's restrictions and its forces is the ability to create or to counterfeit, to make more money right. without producing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I don't know how you provide a literal example of that in cinema, but theoretically speaking, yeah. to make more out of something than what you're given is a mode of resistance. Yeah. And it requires invention. And just being limited... Or limiting yourself and letting another's perspective takes your place opens on to um, uh, a power to resist, a power to think, to dive into time and thought. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's good. I need well, to take a break. <laughs> yeah. That's a good. That's a good place to take a break. All right. Well. All right. Thanks for listening this far. We'll tune in next week. You should, well, not we, you'll tune in next week for, we'll probably conclude it, 7, 8, 9, we could probably do that, uh, next week, and then, yeah, yeah, great, thanks for listening this far, and we'll catch you next time, peace out. <laughs>